So this week, um, actually last Sunday, we had this this service. It was something I was kind of surprised by. Um, for those of you who were here last week, we had the, the cross, the, that cross right here. We had it on a stand, standing here, and we um, brought strips of linen, black strips, talking some about sin and placing them on the cross. And um, it was surprisingly powerful. Um, people came up to me afterward and said, you know, Jason, that was, that was um, an amazing service, and we were so grateful for that. And, you know, thank you for that. And, you know, I had to tell people that that really wasn't my idea. That, that was actually just what we did with the kids on Friday. Uh, that that exercise of bringing that devotion of bringing these strips of linen and put them on the cross and I thought you know it was great with the kids the kids the kids enjoyed it and and seemed like they were really um, uh, moved by what was happening there and I thought well, it would be great to share that with the church so I really can't take any credit for that uh, it was God's spirit I was surprised at how moving it was for us <clears throat> but not only that but some of the questions that came up afterward out of that experience some of the questions that people had, some of the discussion that we had after. And I started thinking, you know, we need to talk some more about Jesus, about the cross and what has happened there. I think, you know, it's helpful for us to, as Christians, you know, we can say, Jesus, Jesus saves me. Jesus died on the cross and I'm saved. And, and we can really take for granted what that means. Or maybe we can even say it and not fully understand it. Now, here's, here's the great thing is you don't have to understand it. And I would say that we never fully will understand it. That there is a part of Jesus' death on the cross on, and everything that that means, salvation through that, what God is doing there, there is part of that that is beyond our understanding as people. But that's not to say that we can't learn a lot about it. That's not to say that we can't try our best, relying on the Word of God, relying on Scripture, and 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 thoughtful Christians who have gone before us to try and understand what's happening here. How, how did Jesus do this? You know, I was thinking about it, kind of like an analogy of, of, of someone who drives a car. You know, there's some people, um, they drive a car wonderfully. They have no idea how it works. All they know is they put the key in, turn it, press the different pedals, and it does what they want it to do. That's, that's for some people, that's enough. And I think I'm pretty close to that category. <laughs> um, some of you are mechanics. Some of you are mechanics. You know how the engine works. You know how the electrical works. You can take apart the drivetrain and put it back together. You know exactly how the thing works, and you could probably build your own car from scratch. So there's different levels, and, and both are good. But the thing that I'm concerned about, uh, to kind of take the analogy to faith, is that some of us, we just have this faith in Jesus. We just... We don't understand it. We don't know how God did all this through the cross. We just know that he did. And that's good enough for us. Some of us want to understand it more. We want to, to try and get at how was God, why did God do this? And how does Jesus fit into this? The thing that's really that I wanted to address this morning, the thing that I feel really compelled to talk about, are people who say, you know, I just don't get it. And because I don't get it, I'm not interested. Like, that's the part that's really troubling for me. And I had talked with people like that. They say, you know, I just don't understand how somebody dying on a cross 2,000 years ago has any bearing on my life now. That's the part that's troubling for me. So that's why I wanted to talk some about uh, what is God doing on the cross? Um, you know, sometimes people see the cross and they see it 
as a place of guilt. And some Christian traditions have really, really emphasized the guilt part. You know that Jesus is on the cross, and it's our shame, it's our sin that put him there. Don't you feel horrible? And they keep pushing that part of it. Um, and I'm going to talk some more about that today. Um, because there's some, there's some validity to the reality of our sin, and I don't want to, to paper over that. But when I see the cross, I see an empty cross. I see an empty cross because Christ died, but he rose again. And I realize that I have sin in me. There are things that are broken in me. There are things in me that I regret. Even things that I say or think, even this last week, that I'm ashamed of. And yet I believe that because Jesus died on the cross in my place, that that sin is gone. It is taken care of. Not, like, not just forgotten about, not overlooked, but God actually did something about it on the cross. And we're going to get more on that today. The thing also, too, that is helpful for me to realize, too, is that Jesus accomplished this already. You know, that's, I think that's a major difference between Christianity and a lot of other religions, maybe even all the other religions, is that as Christians we believe that salvation is already taken care of. We don't have to keep earning it. We don't have to keep doing things to earn our way. In fact, Jesus, when he was, <clears throat> was on the cross uh, in John's Gospel, he says, it is finished. That's the last thing he says before he dies on the cross. It is finished. It's complete. It's taken care of. Oh no. Sounds like someone is. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like maybe he's upset. Right. So Jesus is saying that it is completely taken care of. But I started asking questions about it, you know, and some of the questions that I heard last week after, after our discussion, after Sunday service. So, um, and I know some of you have questions too. I mean, whether you've been a Christian for decades or maybe you're here this morning because you're kind of curious what this is all about, maybe you're asking, you know, why did Jesus die on a cross? Or who? Like, who is Jesus that he would die on a cross? And why does it matter that Jesus did? Why not just anybody? Why does it matter that Jesus did? Or, or how? How does Jesus dying on a cross, how does that change my life? How does that matter to me 2,000 years later, halfway around the world? How does that matter? I think whether you're here this morning and you have been following Jesus for decades, or whether you're here this morning and you're still kind of thinking about it, like kind of checking it out, we all have questions. And it's like I said, I mean, earlier that, you know, the cross, there's a part of it that is mysterious, that's beyond human understanding. But that's not to say that we can't learn a lot about it and, not to have it, and also to have it shape our lives. You know, and thankfully, we're not the first people to ask these questions. We're not the first people to wonder, how does the cross matter? Why, why Jesus? Why not somebody else? We're not the first, per, not the first people to ask these questions. In fact, the, the New Testament is largely letters written by pastors, pastors like we call them apostles, like Paul or Peter or James, 
Um, we're not the first people to ask these questions. And like I said, the, the New Testament is essentially letters written by pastors to churches trying to explain what has happened since Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Trying to unpack that, trying to explain it. Now, thankfully, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of faithful Christians who have gone before us. Brilliant minds. People who have tried to explain and understand what is happening. And for me, this, this last week, trying to get at some of these questions I had, trying to get at these questions of, of how does the cross help us? Why did it have to be Jesus? I was actually relying a lot on this book uh, here. Uh, it's a book that I read in seminary uh, or in Bible school as I was training to be a pastor. It's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. John Stott was an evangelical pastor from England. He's a brilliant guy. I love this book, uh, The Cross of Christ, because it's, it's as deep as you can get. I mean, I'm reading through it. I'm thinking like, man, I need to read this again and again and again to understand what he's trying to say. But at the same time, it's very accessible. So hopefully that doesn't sound excuse me, contradictory in that there's plenty of there, there's tons of theology there, but it's also in pretty plain language. John Sod is a great writer. He used to be a, he was a uh, pastor, and so he knows how to write in a way that is very accessible, easier to understand. But that book has been helping me a lot this week. And so let's get into this. I want to, if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Or if it's, if it's easier for you, there's just this bulletin uh, inside it. It says Romans chapter 5, 1 to 2. And we're just going to focus on just two verses. So for those of you who are here this week who are kind of uh, new or, or um, that, there's just two verses. Don't worry, you don't have to read a whole lot. Uh, but I wanted to read this passage. So listen to this. So this is from Paul, a pastor, Apostle Paul, writing to a church in Rome. And he says, and this is right in the middle of the, of the letter. So he said a few things before this. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So it's actually in, in the Greek, that's actually all one sentence. Um, Paul, the, the pastor who wrote that, is like the, the king of long-winded sentences. Lots of modifiers there. And so, even though it's just two sentences, there's a lot to take in. And I was thinking about it this week, um, something that would help us, something portable that we could take with us uh, in our lives. Uh, so I thought these two verses would be a great way to do it. And I, it kind of remind me, when I was first started my job, um, I worked at a telecommunications company. I was in my 20s. Uh, and my, my mom, as a gift for me, got me a briefcase. Which, like, funny, who carries briefcase anymore, right? And it was kind of it was like, the, it was like the traditional kind, you know, where you, you have the little click things, and the thing, you know, open up, and, and uh, the little file folders come out. And I was thinking, like, this verse to me reminds me of, like, that briefcase. Um, another, uh, I think, is because it has all these compartments. And so it all packs together tight, and you can carry it with you, but then you can open it up and pull everything out. And these, these two verses are sort of like that for us. There's tons of theological import, tons of theological information here for us to kind of suck out of these two verses. Okay, so let's get started. <clears throat> So Paul says, therefore, 
since we have been justified. Okay, so like I mentioned already, the first thing I want to point out is that he says, since we have been justified. This is in the past tense. This is something that has already happened, okay? So notice he doesn't say, since you might be justified someday, or since maybe you'll be justified. He says, since we have been justified already. This is something that God has already done. And I talked about it just a little bit at the beginning, that at the end, of the last thing that Jesus says on the cross, he says, it's finished. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have been saved. It's something that has already happened. This is not something that you need to find some way to earn. It is something that has happened. Okay? That's the first thing I wanted us to see. All right. Oh, sorry. Uh, so, there's something that has happened. And, you know, justified, it's kind of like, what does Paul mean by that? And now, justified is actually a legal term. Uh, in, in the Greek, the word that he's getting at is dikaiosune, or righteousness. And it's sort of coming at it from like a courtroom sort of uh, um, metaphor. Okay? So, this is essentially saying that you have been acquitted. We have been acquitted. Been on trial and found not guilty. Not that we aren't guilty of sin, and we'll get into that, but... As far as God's concerned, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, our sin no longer separates us from God. We have been found not guilty. Okay? And let me explain. I'll come back to that. So this is, um, in one sense, uh, we talk about it like uh, as a forensic sense. So basically, the evidence is not there now. Even though we have sin in our lives, and anybody who's honest would acknowledge that, God sees us as righteous because of Jesus. So, where does this come from? What is the source of this righteousness? Well, or this, this justified, this fact that we have justification. What is the source of it? First of it is, it's God's grace, okay? We are justified. That's where it comes from, God's grace. This is not up to us to earn. This is God's grace because of who God is, God's character we are justified. Okay, now the grounds for this justification, right? What are the grounds of it? It's the blood of Jesus. You see, we, I'm not going to get into it because it's complicated and huge, but in the Old Testament, people would make sacrifices, life for life, to pay for their sin. That was the kind of makeshift way God had given uh, the people of Israel their way of dealing with sin. Now, the trouble with it is, you know, you could, like, every time you sinned, it was like another animal because animals couldn't atone for our sin as people. So, and actually what they would do is they would take the blood of a sacrifice and they would sprinkle it on the altar. Well, Jesus on the cross, he bleeds. There's blood. It's his life for ours. And I know that at first, like, it seems like I mean, I, for those of you who've been following Jesus for a while, you kind of know what I'm talking about. You've had some time to give this some thought and think about it. Uh, if you're um, new to all this, you're thinking like, well, how does that do anything? How does Jesus' blood save me? And I'm going to get into that, so bear with me. So it's, the grounds are his blood. 
the means is by our faith in him. That's the means of how we get there. It's our faith in Jesus. And by faith, um, sometimes people take that to mean like, I agree with that, or I think like that, but then I don't actually live like that. And I think as you read through the New Testament, faith uh, is not just a mental ascent, not just something we agree to, but also a way we live. I think in the Old Testament, or sorry, in, in, the, in the scriptures, they would say, if, if you were to say, I believe this, but then you live differently, they actually have a word for that. It's called kupokrito, uh, which you get the word hypocrite. Someone who believes one thing, but, li- but lives a different way. That's a hypocrite. And so what Jesus is talking about, or what Paul is talking about here to the church in Rome, is not only a faith that we believe, that we mentally say, yes, I agree to that, but also a faith that we live. Right? So, Therefore, since we have been justified through this faith, we have peace with God. Now, this is the effect. This is what comes out of being justified. This is the result of it. Peace with God. And I would expand that even more to this way of life, this type of life that comes with following Jesus. And I can only tell you from my own experience how my life has changed when I began really following Jesus. How it helped me to be, um, how it made me less selfish, less greedy, less absorbed in my own life, and made me, it helped me to see life beyond myself. Not only that, but it got me all, out of all sorts of trouble. Before I was really serious about following Jesus, I thought nothing of going out and drinking until I could barely walk. Like that was just a weekend for me. And then I really began following Jesus, and I stopped doing that. Um, partly because Jesus says, Jesus says, don't do that. <laughs> Not because he doesn't want us to have fun, but because he knows what comes from it. And I can tell you the stuff that came from it. It wasn't pleasant. <laughs> I thought it was pleasant in the moment, but then the morning after, it wasn't so pleasant. <laughs> Some of you nodding your head, you know what I'm talking about. So I have this new life this life with, uh, with Tracy and our sons here with this church family. I was thinking about it just a little bit. Last night we had um, uh, some people over to watch a movie on the side of our house. And, um, and there were a couple beers in the cooler, but I don't think anybody drank any of them. And there was different people, people from our church and people from the community. And, um, but most of us were just drinking like club soda and sodas and stuff like that. And I was thinking, this is unique in our culture. We were having a wonderful time with our kids. And they're like, nobody was drinking. <laughs> like, it was just fun. And I was thinking about that sort of life and how good that is. Um, and it, thinks about, it makes me think of this, this life more full with Jesus, just as an example, just like one example of it. But not only does this life more full happen now when we begin following Jesus, but it also extends forever. See, sometimes we think about, you know, I'm following Jesus, so someday I can go to heaven when I die. Well, I mean, yes, there's truth to that, but our eternal life begins the moment we begin following Jesus. We have this eternal, like if those of us who are following Jesus right now, we are already living our eternal life. It's already now. I believe it gets better when we are with him in heaven and when heaven finally comes down but we are already living that life more full right now. 
So it says, talking about this, we have this, this peace with God. And, you know, I think this is an interesting thing. When, when Paul writes peace here, uh, in, in Greek it's arene, like um, from which we get the like, um, serene sort of, like it's really calm, no violence, no agitation. But I think Paul is probably actually um, referring or thinking more the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, and you don't need to worry about these vocab words, but, but the Hebrew idea of shalom was not just the end of war and violence. So not only did you just stop fighting, but you actually became friends. That's the idea of, of Hebrew word of shalom. And not only that, but you actually helped one another prosper. And so when we have this shalom-like peace with God, it's not just that the fighting stops, it's that we're reconciled that the relationship flourishes and things are better, things are good again. And I start thinking about how far we've come. In other parts of this letter, the letter to the church in Rome that Paul wrote, he talks about at one point, that actually in this, right around the same verse in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, when, even when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Now, enemy is a strong word, Right? And it's pretty scary to think, like when you actually really think about it, what it would be like to be an enemy of God. That's a big deal. And so you think about how far Christ has brought us from enemy to shalom, to restore, to reconcile. And I think that's maybe the part that's harder for us in our culture right now to understand is the enemy part. Most, I guess some people think of God as like an angry judge. That's a common misconception about God. Some people, on the other hand, some people, people think of God as like a really cool grandpa. He's just a cool guy. He's my buddy. And, you know, there's, there's some truth to that. And, but the trouble is, is it can undermine our, our realization of our sinfulness. And the thing is, the less we understand our sinfulness, our brokenness, the harder it is for us to understand grace. I mean, think about it. If you think, you know, yeah, you know, like, I got a few quirks. I'm not like a, I don't do everything right, you know. But I'm a pretty good person. Grace, kind of not a big deal, right? You kind of think, yeah, you know, like, yeah, maybe I kind of cheat on my taxes a little bit and, cut a few corners here and there, and maybe I'm not totally honest, but I'm pretty good. So, yeah, you know, like, you know, God's not really, you know, it's not really a big deal for him to save me, right? That's a complete misunderstanding of our sin and God's holiness. You know, I think it's hard talking about it, about sin. Um, I was thinking about it years ago. There were some friends who came uh, some friends of ours live in this community. They came on Easter, uh, preached my heart out about salvation, and then the next thing I thought, you know, you can't really understand grace until you understand sin, so I preached on sin. And I've never seen them here since. And so, <clears throat> I don't, I mean, I didn't ask them. I don't know what, like, I mean, maybe they just, I don't know, something totally unrelated. But it has made me think, like, man, be careful how I talk about sin. You know, because people hate to talk about it in our culture right now. 
you know, in, in our culture, we don't really have sin. We just have different opinions, right? There's no longer right or wrong. There's just your opinion and my opinion. And as long as your opinion doesn't mess up my life, you're welcome to it. That's kind of how our culture works. And we see it totally, too, as people around us, our culture, try and duck responsibility, right? I mean, I just can't help it, but I think like politicians, right? That's what they do. Duck responsibility. If something is wrong, it wasn't my fault. It was the system that's broken. I mean, how much do we hear that even in our culture among everybody? You know, I, I don't, I didn't, I'm not actually responsible for what's wrong here. That was my, my upbringing. Or this group who didn't treat me right. Or that institution. Or, but it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. I'm just a product of things that have gone wrong. The trouble is there's some truth. I mean, like, I mean, I think about my advantages. I mean, I grew up in a great home. Uh, I was able to go to a university. I lived in, in uh, grew up in Western, or Eastern Washington. I live now in Canada, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. I have tons of advantages. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But I've also made choices. And I was, as I was reading and studying this week, realizing that when we start saying that my situation is the result of, con- or is the consequence, or the result of, of forces around me, we abdicate our responsibility. It means we give up our responsibility. We lose our integrity as people. When we say it's not my fault, I'm just the result of unfortunate circumstances, I would argue that we say, you know, I'm not really human. I'm just a product of external forces, which I don't agree with. I think we are more than that. I think God created us in his, in his image and he has given us choices to make. And we, the more we take responsibility, the better things will go for us. You know, so I think about this in terms of, of sin. You know, and I know it's, it's hard to talk about, maybe it's hard for some of you to hear. You know, I think about us as Christians, it's not that we have this morbid obsession with sin and guilt. That's not it at all. I think it's more that we have a sober assessment just how broken we really are. You know, I was, I was reading actually in John Stott's book and he was talking about, um, uh, I think it was Freud, uh, who was saying, you know, this obsession, the Christian obsession with guilt is what messes so many people up. And I don't agree. I don't feel like I'm obsessed with guilt. I feel like I'm just honest about how broken I am. I'm just honest about the, the motives that I have for things that maybe other people see, oh, that seems like a wonderful thing. How kind of you, Jason. Yet I know some of the underlying motives and the things that are going on in me. So it's important for us to understand sin, to come to terms with our own sinfulness. Not because we want to rake ourselves over the coal or try to be so depressing, but the more we understand the depth of our sin, the more important grace becomes to us. Do you see that difference? Do you see why it's important to be honest about what's broken in us? Because if we deny the brokenness in us, it's hard for us to really appreciate grace. See what I'm saying? Okay, so we have not only our own brokenness and sinfulness, but then also too, on the opposite, the far opposite extreme is God's holiness. And that's what I was talking about earlier. You know, people have these really... um, 
unhelpful ideas of who God is and what he's like. Um, I was thinking about this, these verses here that, you know, to understand God's holiness. He says, now he's talking about God here. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. This is the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So God, because he's holy, can't just overlook and, would, and won't just overlook sinfulness. It's like pollution to God. Or what about Isaiah 59.2? And he's talking about us. He says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, because God is holy, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. That's the situation. That's what sin does between us and God. Sin separates us. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we're greedy, when we lose our temper, when we do violence, whether it's verbally or physically, those things separate us from God because God is holy. None of that stuff exists in God. He's holy. And some of you might be thinking like, well, can't he just like ease up a little bit, right? Like, why does it have to be so extreme? Can you imagine just for a second what it would be like if God wasn't holy? What if God didn't care about theft? What if God didn't care about sex trafficking? What if God didn't care about exploiting children? That'd be horrible. I can't even imagine what what reality would be like if God were like that, if God were not holy. Not only is God holy, but he's also angry at sin, which is the natural, and I would even say the right, response to sin. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of a father. I've got two boys. I love them, but they sin against each other all the time, <laughs> usually with a fist, right? Constantly pushing each other, and like almost inevitably it ends up with one of them coming up to me crying because the other one punched too hard or pushed too hard. And it, it makes me angry. I get angry when they hurt each other. I believe God gets angry when we hurt each other. And we do horrible things to each other. People do horrible things to people. So I think it's right for God to be angry at that. But it's interesting, as I was reading uh, John Stott's book, he was making a careful point that God doesn't react like we do. You know, we, my kids hit each other, and then I start yelling, Lord, forgive me. And oftentimes I have to ask them to forgive me then later too. God doesn't lose his temper, so to speak. God's reaction he doesn't actually, it's not actually a reaction, it's more a response. Oh, man. <laughs> what are they doing to the kids out there? <laughs> Aren't you guys grateful that you're in here? Wow. I'm like about ready to pray for them out there. Um. We want God to be holy. Because if he's not, all sorts of things go wrong. (laughs) 
So not only is God holy, but God is also love. These are important characteristics of God. These are not just like things that God chooses to be, I think I'll be holy now, or I think I'll be loving now. God is both of these essentially all the time. It's fundamental to who he is. Okay? So then you begin to understand that the cross was the only way that God could both at the same time be completely holy and completely loving. Because God is holy, he can't just say, you know what, I'm just going to overlook sin. I'm going to overlook the horrible things that people do to each other. You know, who would want to follow a God like that anyways? But at the same time, he loves humanity. He loves his creation, the people he has created. So he can't just say, well, you know, I, I tried my best. I guess they all die. So what does he do? How does he work this out? And there's tons to be said here, but essentially it's this. God the Father sends God the Son who was willing to come to take on flesh and become completely human while at the same time remaining to be completely God, to live among us and then to be, and then to be arrested, to suffer and die on a cross, gathering all of our sin, everybody in this room, everybody around the world and everyone who has existed, both behind us and in front of us, gathering all sin in one place on the cross and paying the penalty for it there. That's what Jesus did. Because he loves us. Jesus, when he was talking with, with um, Nicodemus, who was a, a religious teacher of his day, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only divine son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life because of his love. But it, honestly, it wouldn't be very loving if God just overlooked sin either, right? So he had to do both, and that's why the cross is so important. That's why the cross matters. God did all of this together at the cross. See, the thing is, our failure to appreciate the cross makes it hard for us to understand grace and salvation. Okay, so let's keep moving. So it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm talking about here, about Jesus, about specifically being him. That he is a substitute. He stood in our place. And you, know, you may think, oh, where does it say that? Or how does it say that? And this is uh, a letter from Peter that he wrote to churches in modern-day Turkey. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, we might not, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus stands in our place. He hung there in our place. What about Romans? This comes a little bit later in this same chapter, just a couple verses after what we're studying this morning. It says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. Now, if Jesus were only a human, it would be impossible for him to do this. One, because every human sins. We all make mistakes. We all lose it. Not only that, but it'd be unjust. Like, how could God ask one person to stand in the place for everyone else? That's not justice either. But Jesus had to be completely human. But he was just more than that as well. He was also completely God. But you can't go too far the other direction either and say, well, maybe he wasn't human at all. Maybe he was just God. We get into all sorts of trouble that way because how can God actually die? 
God is immortal, if he's truly God. And so is he just playing at this? So Jesus had to be completely human and completely God. And you get a hint of that here where Paul calls him Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's debate, you know, what does Lord mean here? You know, Lord could mean as, as basic as sir. But I think when Paul is talking about Jesus, like many of his disciples, I think he's thinking more of the word Lord that he grew up with. In Hebrew, it's Adonai, which was the name that they used for God. It means Lord, because they were afraid to use the name Yahweh. They were afraid to even utter the name, so they just said the Lord. And so when Paul is calling Jesus the Lord to a group of Christians and Jews who are reading this letter, I think he's saying more than just sir. I think he's saying the Lord God. And that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who is this Christ. Now, Christ is not his last name. Okay, just to say that again. Jesus was not the baby boy of Mr. and Mrs. Christ, okay? Christ is a title. It's the Greek word for uh, anointed, which is, in Hebrew, the word is Mashiach, or Messiah, meaning Savior, which had religious and political, global implications. Jesus is this Messiah. So it's through him, specifically him. Jesus, this man who is at the same time God, or this God who became man, so that he might save us by dying on a cross. So it's through whom, through Jesus, whom we've gained access by faith and the grace in which we now stand, that we are reconciled to God. And it's important to make a point here. It's not that God has been reconciled to us, not like God did something wrong and so Jesus you know, kind of brings God along. It's not it at all. We, us, humanity, we have been reconciled to God because he is holy and we are the ones who have sinned. So we have been reconciled to God. We have this access now. He talks about it right here. He says, you've gained access. Before that, people thought they were cut off from God. The temple, for those of you who, who don't know, the, the first century temple of, of Judaism, it had all these compartments. And the further, there's the, the central part was the Holy of Holies. That's where God, they believe God sat there. God lived there. It was like his home on earth. And then they had all these levels, these rings around it. And the less, holy you were, the less holy you were, the further away you had to be. And if you had any sort of impurity, you couldn't even get in the temple courts, like the, the fence around it. But because of Jesus now, we can walk right up and call God Father. This morning when I prayed, when we prayed together as a church, I began, Father in heaven. That's the way Jesus taught us to pray. And, you know, we pray that prayer so many times. It's called the Lord's Prayer. We pray it so many times that we can take it for granted the fact that we are able to call God Father. That's an amazing change that has happened because of Jesus. We have been reconciled to God. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. We have this new life. Our sin is no longer counted against us. We might still pay the consequences of it here in this life, but it no longer separates us from God because of Jesus. God the Son, who came and took our place, took the penalty of our sin and died so that we might have life. 
So you might be thinking, you know, you know, Jason, this is a ton of information, and you know, it seemed like this would pack up tighter into a suitcase. You know, I guess it really does unpack a lot when you start thinking about just these two verses. But I encourage you to take these verses home and look at them. If you want to read around them, what comes before and what comes after in the book of Romans, you can look it up online, just Romans chapter 5. But give some thought to these verses. Give some thought to this reality. Give some thought to our own sinfulness, the things that we do wrong, the things that we, that we are broken. Watch how this changes your life as you understand the cross more fully. I can only speak from the experience of how it has changed mine. Imagine what this could mean for us if the cross was no longer this, this symbol of guilt and shame, but a reality that we have been justified through faith and that we have made, we have ha- now have peace with, Father, with God, our Father in heaven, that we've been reconciled. Imagine what that could do in your life, let alone imagine what that could do in our community. Think about the people you know the people who live around you, who they wrestle with guilt and shame their whole life. It drags them down. Imagine if they could be set free. Imagine if they could realize who Jesus is finally. That some of the, the wrong ideas about who he is and what he's done on the cross, if all those could be swept away and they would see that God the Father sent God the Son to die on a cross to take our punishment that we might be set free. It's a beautiful thing. I can't wait to see more of it.